Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is episode 47. And today we're going to be talking about the Church 2 movement, power abuses, and sexual abuses that have happened in the church. This is part one of our conversation. And as we've been talking about how God's mission is to redeem all things and to be present with us in the midst of our pain and struggles, we want to learn how to face things head on and to seek his healing and restoration and be preventative in the way we structure and organize our leadership. So let's do this. Hey, thank you guys so much for joining us on this conversation today. It is one in which has affected a lot of people, and we're going to try to deal with it as sensitively as we can. And it has been actually requested to us to be talking about this topic from a Canadian Asian perspective. And along those lines, we are also not going to be talking about anyone specific. We're not going to be naming people or specific situations, but we are going to be talking about some of the inherent issues that are, you know, underlying what has happened in, in these kind of movements and has deeply affected men and women in ministry and has changed the perspective of leadership. As always, we got Bernard here. Bernard, what's going on? Aos. 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 And we have two very special guests. We have Xenia and Daisy. How are you guys doing? Doing pretty well. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, doing pretty well. Awesome. So glad that you guys are here with us today. We didn't want to approach this conversation just from a men's perspective, but we wanted to have a woman's perspective as well. And so we got two seminary students, ministry leaders, and they offer a very balanced and important voice and thoughtful voice. And so we want to invite them on this conversation today. So before we jump into that, can you share with us a little bit about your background? You are both Chinese Canadian and a little bit about your background in ministry and leadership and how have you come to understand kind of the relationship between men and women in leadership? Yeah. So I grew up in Richmond Hill in the 90s and early 2000s, just deep into the Chinese community. Since moving away from home and entering into my undergrad, I actually spent a little bit of time as a journalist. I've worked in government. And I think all of those things have informed my ministry experience. Mm -hmm. I was actually supposed to start at Tyndale a couple of years ago. But the Lord took me on a bit of a detour. I worked for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and they sent me to Vancouver and sent me to Montreal. I worked as a campus site planter, and I've also worked uh, with international students. Nice. And then when I came back to Toronto, because I felt like if I'm going to do this, I just couldn't make sense of the questions that I was wrestling with because sure. I'd been raised in a Western paradigm, but international students from all over the world were confronting my Western paradigm. So I came back to school and I started doing some work in diaspora contexts. So I worked for a little bit with a Vietnamese congregation, a Thai congregation, obviously a Chinese context and the Burmese contexts. Wow. That's a wealth of experience. That's awesome. Daisy. Yeah. So I grew up mainly going to the same church and a church plant of that church in Alberta, around Edmonton and Calgary. And so those are the churches that raised me pretty much. I have been involved in worship ministry and children's ministry mm -hmm. and youth ministry, pretty much all there is to offer. And kind of growing up in that situation, church and worship and God has always been one 
sort of concentrated theology, one image of what that looks like. And so I think the wonderful thing about coming here to Tyndale is just having a world of opportunity and diverse opinions and, and perspectives that I can sort of explore my faith for what it is and not what I have been raised in. Right. And when you say you've been raised in that context, was that a Chinese context? Was it more of a multicultural context? How would you describe it? It's interesting because it is a Chinese church and it is very, I guess, monocultural in that sense. But I have always been um, an English congregation Mm -hmm. member. Sure. And our English congregation back in my home church in Edmonton is mainly Chinese because it's second generation, a lot of like youths with parents in our Mandarin congregation, but also a mix of community members who might not necessarily be Chinese, but um, might be related to some of our original church members or just live in the community, which I think is very cool because it situates our church within the context of the location we are in and not just the, the ethnic group that we are in. That's excellent. Awesome. So glad that both of you guys are here. And so the follow-up question is, you know, how have you guys come to understand the relationship between men and women in leadership? Yeah, so I grew up in a church that ordained women or started to ordain women in the early 2000s. So I think that it wasn't really a question in my head whether or not women could serve in leadership. Mm -hmm. And then when I moved off to university, my first sort of outside church was a Wesleyan church. And they support full ordination of women. Women can be senior pastors. And so this question about women in leadership didn't really come to the fore until I started to encounter my second-gen peers who were really moving into the Young, Restless, and Reform movement. Mm. Uh, And then all of a sudden, oh, my calling is called into question and my giftings are called into question. That's been interesting. Predominantly, I think that when it comes to the women and men in leadership, if we tell women that we can't be in leadership, we handcuff half the church. And then we say, you know, not everybody can be about the mission of God. Mm. Um, That conversation usually revolves around gifting. If you're gifted to a particular thing, then you serve the body. Whereas the other side usually is about the the gender question. Sure. So in, in recent kind of understandings, like I have worked really in conjunction with a lot of men. And I find that in a lot of ways, we, it's the complementarity of Men and women working together is actually quite awesome because we do bring different experiences and different gifts to the table. Mm, all right. You are also doing a presentation on a paper with our good friend of the podcast, Lisa Pack, about Chinese and Korean history of women in leadership. What did you learn from that? Yeah, so Lisa and I kind of sat down and we said, you know, the conversation in the church, in, at least in our circles, has largely been a theological conversation. And sometimes when we talk about theology, we think of it as separate from history. Mm. So we decided, well, let's take a second look at what is going on. That's so cool. Especially if you look at sort of burgeoning church renewal or even planting, you know, the the missionaries and such. Women are fully released into their giftings, and they are the ones at the forefront of these movements almost Mm. consistently all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest things that I found out on my end, you can ask Lisa about hers, is that there were women who overcame significant obstacles to become believers. Uh, the movement in China was predominantly one that was lower class. Mm. So lower class women came to faith. And some of it was due to missionaries seeing that 
male missionaries couldn't interact with Chinese women because of the Confucian construct. And so they empowered their female colleagues to go and minister oh, to Chinese women. Yeah, wow. Um, but it, it also, we have these crazy stories of, do, you know the story of Watchman Nee? He's kind of like a legend in Chinese in the Chinese church. So a woman's ministry led him to faith. Oh, I didn't is, know that. Yeah. That's so, an aspect of it that I did awesome. not know. So Dora Yu, she was leading these revival meetings. She was also a part-time doctor. And then she also worked as a missionary to Korea. But when she came back, she was leading these revival meetings. And Watchman Nee's mother was there, was converted. She brought her son. He ended up at one of these meetings. He became a believer. And wow. that's the story that's from there. Cool. That is really cool. And for our listeners who do not know as much about that background, could you just explain a little bit about his significance? So he's probably one of the biggest names in Chinese church history. He was a significant pastor and evangelist, and he probably was one of the first people to kind of systematically organize uh, a theology for Chinese people. And people really looked to him as one of the, the forefront people who created like a Chinese church. He was a one of the first indigenous leaders. He wasn't the first one, obviously, but... Um, and he's written a couple of books. Yes. Um, Sit, Walk, Stand, and it's a book on Romans. That is a fascinating thing about, you know, how the impact of women leaders was in his life, right? Yeah. That's awesome. Even in our tribe, too, in the Christian Missionary Alliance, like as we look back at the history of the Alliance, some of the earliest missionaries were women. Okay. They were being sent out because... You know, they had they, they had the call and, you know, before we became a denomination, we were a mission agency and we felt like God, God's moving in these people's lives that we have to send them. Like, right. And so it was really cool to, to kind of be a part of a heritage that, that had that in, sure. in its DNA. Now, not all of us still are at that place right now. Right. But um, it's, it's, it's important to see history and, and recognize that. Yeah. And you bring up the denominational aspect of it. This has been something that denominations like have been wrestling with fairly recently within the last like you know fifty hundred years, yeah. and different denominations have approached it in different ways. And so, like you know, Bernard, from from your kind of perspective, you know, how has those conversations gone? So we we were still discussing this. You're still discussing um, it, right? I think about six years ago, we was when we finally made a decision about women an ordination in senior pastorship, right? And what I appreciate it about the approach now is that we want it to give the space for the local church to decide mm. to as a denomination not to dictate because we know that we would have complementarian uh, churches within our our tribe of churches mm -hmm. but how do we maneuver or work together theologically different but still unified sure and I think like that's a better reflection of kind of God's kingdom work as opposed to being like no this is the line we've drawn you're either with us or you're against us i appreciate that but it's still it's still hard right um, especially people who have deep convictions sure that sounds a lot like church autonomy which is very much part of where i'm coming <laughs> that's, from that's from your the, tradition <laughs> from the baptist side <laughs> you know each church makes their their own choice on that and so yeah that's always so interesting that to hear how that conversation has kind of led to that place yeah 
So Daisy, for you, how have you kind of come to understand throughout your life, throughout your involvement in the church, about the relationship between men and women in in ministry? Yeah, so I think growing up as well in my church, it wasn't really talked about much, and I don't think I ever realized it was an issue until much later in my life. Okay. Yeah, so I am a pastor's kid, but like my dad is a pastor, but my Mom works very closely with him in Mm. all things. Pretty much his job is her job. And she is such a role model for me because she is like one of the most strong and powerful Christian women I know. And she has just consistently inspired me throughout my life. And I think that is why I never doubted that women could be leaders. Like since we had never talked about it explicitly in my church, just seeing the way my mom works, the way she spearheads ministries in our church and the way she just, you know, asserts herself in that environment was very cool for me. Cool. And I think like going into university, that's where sort of the ideas of like, um, you can look at scripture and there's complementarian ideas kind of came up and I learned about them for the first time. And I had friends who were doubting their own capacity for leadership because of right. like things they had right. been learning from different institutions. And it made me very confused. So I, I, you know, I approached my mom as, <laughs> as anyone does when they want theological advice. Yes. And, <laughs> um, you're here. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So I asked her, I was like, is it true? The Bible says that women should not be leaders in the church and she got so angry with me that she couldn't even answer and she just like went to find my dad and was like please explain to your daughter what these passages mean (laughs) and my dad obviously being much more relaxed much more chill he just came and he told me and I guess that is what the stance of our church is okay Um, so that I think is is one thing but um the treatment of women can sometimes be independent of the theology of the church. Sometimes things are biblically based. Sometimes things are culturally based. Yeah. So just to be able to distinguish um, those differences is very important. Man, that's a big can of worms right there. The difference between biblical and cultural, how it comes together, how sometimes it is separate. Oh, man, we're going to talk more about this in this episode. So you better continue to listen. That's great. So as we continue to chat today in in this conversation, we want to talk a little bit about the Church 2 movement and how that has affected the relationship between men and women in leadership, especially in ministry. Just as a quick primer for what the Church 2 movement is, if you haven't heard about this, and actually it's been really interesting for us to dialogue with some of our listeners through email and through you know social media about this. But for those of you guys who don't know what it is, it has a connection to the Me Too movement, which started early very early on, actually in 2006 on MySpace, MySpace, a throwback, big throwback to that. MySpace. But then only a few years ago, in 2017, celebrities started to confess that they had been assaulted or abused sexually, leading to accusations. There has always been in the past two instances that have come out of the Catholic Church as well. But following the Me Too movement, in November of 2017, this is when Church 2 kind of got started as kind of a bridge over into what was happening within the church and within ministry in, and bringing to light uh, both power and sexual abuses in, in the congregational sense. There was a hashtag called silence is not spiritual, and that was a call for changes on how abuses were dealt with within the church. This is still something that is going on. This is something that is still happening and more things are coming to light. And many pastors and big name pastors 
have been you know accused or have been named in 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 regards to this movement. I just want to put this question out there: What was your reaction? And like we, you know, the four of us are kind of sitting around this table right now. What was your first reaction to hearing that this has happened or that it could happen? I think before we go on, I think it's probably pretty important that we put a trigger warning just in case we talk about anything that just might set people off. Yeah. So we just want to be sensitive to uh, when we're talking about uh, sexual assault or sexual violence. If you're triggered by that, just want to give you permission to walk away until yes. you're ready to listen again. Please feel free just to press stop and, and never come back to this episode. That's okay. We will not take it personally because, you know, these are very traumatic, yeah. very you know, impactful things that happen. Yeah. So I think when, you know, the first of the set of news that broke out over the last couple of years, I was thinking, yeah, that sadly makes a lot of sense um, when we see abuses of power. Uh, sex and power kind of go hand in hand. I think that our generation, me being a millennial, we've been quite disillusioned with the church and this kind of just added to that disillusionment. But recently, a, a pretty towering figure who I highly respected mm -hmm. um, was found out to have abused a number of women. And I remember sitting there as I found the news and thinking, I just feeling absolutely gutted because mm -hmm. yeah. this was a man... Yeah. A number, actually, there were two men who had advocated for women's inclusion, uh, women in leadership, and they just didn't walk the talk. And thinking, how could you say these things and then go on to violate people in the worst possible ways? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It is almost un unbelievable. <laughs> I think sometimes, like, we read these headlines and we see these big movements. We, it removes us from the reality of it. And I'm sad to say, like, I've experienced, not experienced, but, like, I, I was in conversations, have heard of more locally things that have happened. Sure. And so I think I am not surprised, but it still saddens me, especially, like, this this power dynamic that people use as, in, in such a negative way, in such a dark way. Mm. It's almost like it's it's evil in some ways, in many ways, in all ways. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it's just, it's, it's just so, it's so sad. Mm -hmm. um, I think that sometimes my instinctual response to these things is to start formulating an argument in my head as okay. to why mm. this happens. So to justify the church and saying, you know, apologetic stuff. Um, the church is a human institution and humans are, are sinful and this is why this happens and this happens. And at times it is much better of an idea to just take a breath and think about the situation and the people involved and maybe focus more on the victims and their suffering and mm. the things that they've gone through mm. rather than jumping to defend you know, what is yours and what you value because it's ultimately not about you. Right. And so I think that might be a lot of people's responses to a movement like this is to, to defend the church because we love the church. And I think as, as valid as that is, I think our priorities should be in a different place. Hmm. I'm just thinking too, just like, as we were talking, so we, you know, we've read a lot about David Fitch's books um, mm -hmm. and one of his books is the church of us versus them. 
I find that even an issue like this, and, and it's true, like we do need to address it and deal with it, but do we immediately create an enemy narrative or is there like a healing narrative or restorative narrative that we're longing for? Mm. And I find a lot of what we see is an enemy narrative. It's either someone has done something, like it's just focusing on just wrong, but there's no hope in it. Like where's the hopeful, you know, story? And, and if there's any institution that should have a hopeful narrative in the midst of the darkest actions, it should be the church. Mm. But yet we've lost that. Yeah. I wonder what it would even look like to be able to recapture that in light of, you know, these circumstances, in light of these situations. And how do we help people navigate through that? I mean, there's so much of our ingrained culture, whether it's from our Asian culture or from Western culture, that's, that can easily antagonize someone and can easily paint and dehumanize you know, a perpetrator as well. And we're not justifying anything here for sure. How do we engage in a restorative and hopeful way? And does part of that first call out the brokenness in a system or a structure? And you mentioned David Fitch, and he talks about you know, how moral failure can reveal the inherent culture system that has shaped a leader, right? And so are there things in place, whether it's pressures or power, that lead people to be tempted by this or that are causing power to be used in this kind of way? And once again, we're not defending anyone, but I'm just saying like, you know, is something in the system? And, you know, Daisy, you were just trying to think through it. You're trying to unpack and make the arguments in your head. You know, is there something in the system that, you know, is that we need to name so that we can be ready to begin to heal? Actually, I think naming is a big part of healing. Yeah. I think for a long time, the church has tried to bury things because they have thought that, you know, if we don't present a, a less than perfect narrative, no one will want to come. Oh, man. But I think that Shame that's based. a tweetable moment right there. That's true. That's so true. But here's the thing. Shame kind of fosters it definitely fosters fear and fear and fear fosters all sorts of wrongdoing that continues to perpetuate trauma perpetuate sin yeah. and brokenness and we know from the scriptures that we have to put, call things into the light mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We continue we'll have to bring things forward and submit them to the lord and i also think that when we bring things to the light. I mean, just the recent story where this organization did bring it to the light and thought about the ramifications of falling so far from grace mm-hmm. um, was actually a really good moment for the church to be able to say, we're acknowledging the mm-hmm. the wrongdoing of this man. We're accepting that we have been complicit in not holding this man accountable, but these are the steps we're taking to remedy that. And I think that's powerful Absolutely. because yeah, how yeah. often do churches, well, let alone secular organizations do that, right? That is a very gracious response. That's, that's gospeling in the midst of terrible situation. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Now, I just want to follow up on something that Xenia said about how naming it is part of healing. Why do you think it is so hard? I think for women, especially, so uh, just to rattle off some statistics, mm-hmm. uh, we know that from the World Health Organization, that one in three women will experience some sort of sexual violence in their lifetime. Mm. It's one in six men. And the majority of sexual assaults actually occur within 
within contexts where the the victim knows the perpetrator. So these narratives of, you know, being raped in an alleyway because you asked for it because you dressed a certain way, like those those don't often happen. And then we've also got these these other conversations about false allegations. Actually, there's quite a low rate of false allegations because it's so hard for women to step forward. So just in some of the literature that I've been reading, I'm by no means an expert. Um, I'm a I'm an I'm an Old Testament scholar, not a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a Christ follower, which, yes. m- which is all we need. <laughs> uh, is that some of the the reasons why women won't come forward is because the the perpetrator is a, a trusted member of the community, has some significant level of right. authority, or uh, has a leadership position, or they're related to them. Um, the other thing is that women have kind of been trained to be nice, and we don't, of all people, especially I think Chinese women, we do not rock the boat. We do not disrupt harmony under any circumstances. And so that that initial, even the internal barrier of needing to step forward to, you know, report it is is almost insurmountable for a lot of people. Sure, sure. Where does that come from? Is it a cultural thing? Is it patriarchal thing? Is it just the dynamic that, you know, when you mentioned like Chinese women don't rock the boat, they like, it would be almost unimaginable for them to come out and make, you know, a report or accusation. Some of it is just the way that we were raised. Okay. So there's, I've been reading literature on women in in leadership in general. Mm -hmm. Sometimes women have this pact around the boardroom because what happens is that women will say an idea and they won't get heard. And then, but then a male voice will say the exact same idea, but they'll get heard right away. So these, so women will often make a pact in the boardroom that if the thing that has just been said is overlooked, another woman will step up to kind of reaffirm that, that voice and that thing that has just been said. And so I think we've just been kind of ingrained. Conditioned. Conditioned. Yeah. Yeah. To know that sometimes our voices just don't get heard. And I think some of that is patriarchy, but it's also because as a general rule, okay, so as a Chinese woman, I don't want to rock the boat because uh, I know that I will get flack for it. Mm. I think it's, I've been, because I've been writing this paper, I wonder how much of it is that there's still, even though it's not explicitly said, women, women's role is in the home and, and therefore in the private sphere, and the man's role is in the public sphere to speak out in a communal setting is still a public act as opposed to a private act. Interesting. So I wonder how much of that is is going on. I don't know. I don't want to psychoanalyze myself or other Chinese women. So. <laughs> right. Right. Speaking about this topic too, most of the cases that have been brought to light have come out of Caucasian backgrounds. Yeah, does this stuff happen in the Asian context or the Canadian Asian context? which we talk a lot about here in our podcast, how has, you know, Asian churches even responded to hearing things like, oh, you know, this happened at this church that we heard about or that was well-known. How have they kind of internalized and processed through it? So the, one of the dissertations that I was reading for this paper, this paper is like a, just been a treasure trove. So this, this woman who is a Vancouver pastor wrote her dissertation at Western University, Western Seminary, and she wrote of the 49 female pastors, this was in the 90s, that she surveyed, 48 women said that they experienced either sexual harassment or, uh, and then she listed off like a separate group that said that 
had experienced sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And these are Chinese female pastors or ministers wow. in the Vancouver, Hong Kong, uh, interconnected sort of context. 48 out of 49. Wow. That's staggering. Those statistics are, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. And yet it's like, to be honest, like I've rarely ever heard of that, like actually been brought to light and talked about. And it's quite unfortunate because if that is the truth and that's the case, then, you know, how, like, why has it not been something that has been changing things in, in the church and especially in the Asian church? That's, that's, I think, part of the cultural struggle for especially ethnic Asian churches. There's a, fa- like, our, like, it's face space, right? Like, we need to have face. Mm. And so when a shameful thing like that happens, like, then the question is like, oh no, like, then we can't face anyone. Mm. Right. And unfortunately, a lot of it maybe just gets hidden. And for sure, like, it, it does happen in the Asian church. I've heard it, I've seen some cases. Right. But it's just, you know, like, it's just, it's not really talked about. Mm. And I think what the sad, the sad part is, you know, like a lot of the, like a lot of the victims get just, you know, they just, they don't have any victim care as well. Sure. Nor like any form of restorative disciplinary plans as well. So it's just kind of just, it's sad. Um, yeah. If I can, I can quote this same paper, this author's response to this problem was, quote, a mature woman in seminary should be taught by mature clergy women how to cope firmly but graciously with minor verbal abuse and unwelcome joking relationships, end quote. To which I said, this exemplifies sort of the normalization and acceptance of this sort of behavior within the church. Uh, that perpetuates. Yeah. That's horrendous. <laughs> I wrote, this is unacceptable. So, But that's what's accepted. And that's what's normalized. But was that like written, like when was that written? This was written in 1999. Wow. Okay, even 1999. That's... 20 years ago. I would still probably I, say the that's same. That's still unacceptable. <laughs> it's still the same. Unfortunately. Yeah. Very unfortunately. And, and just wondering, like trying to imagine even what would it take to kind of start to move out of that. But I also wonder like if even our own kind of social narratives still perpetuates that in some ways. Oh yeah. Not as, not as explicit as what she was saying, but just like, if you don't respond to an inappropriate thing, then you're actually affirming it. Right. And I wonder if that's as part of like, even still today in our social constructs in many ways. Mm. You know, we appreciate you guys joining us on this conversation, this two-part conversation, and we would love to know what you think and, uh, and how you are wrestling through this and whether you agree or disagree. We'd love to dialogue with you on this because there's no easy answers. And so let's be able to figure this out together. If you'd like to reach out to us or connect with us, you can connect with us on email or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And if you haven't done so already, please remember to review and subscribe to our podcast so that we can be able to continue to join in this conversation together. Once again, you've been listening to the Canadian Agent Missional Podcast. And on behalf of Daisy Xenia and Bernard, we hope to see you next time.